Welcome to this edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series. We recently spent some quality time with jazz saxophonist, composer, arranger, and big band leader Bob Mincer, discussing a wide array of topics pertaining to a long career that has been going strong since the 1970s. He is a force in jazz, and he discussed his cool years with the Yellow Jackets, how jazz matters these days, great stories from the road, the effect he has had on his fans, and the effect they've had on him, along with a whole lot more. Dig it, my friends. Thank you very much for taking some time out today to talk with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to do so. Let me go ahead and jump right in here. How is your latest album, For the Moment, doing? Uh, you mean the eight copies that it sold? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. You know, uh, big band uh, records are a very small niche of, of the jazz market, which is a very small niche of any market. Um, Absolutely. I don't know any jazz enthusiast that cannot get enough of the big band, so it, it's a great album. I really enjoy it myself. Thank um, you. So let's go back to the alpha of your life here in New Rochelle, New York. What was the jazz scene like there when you were growing up? <laughs> what jazz scene? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, uh, for me, the jazz scene was playing, uh, you know, sax a bottle of saxophone in the... Uh, school jazz bands, you know, that's just, but that said, uh, New Rochelle was right next to New York City, it was just a 20-minute train ride, so when I was 14, I was already going into Manhattan to, to clubs to hear live jazz, so that was incredible, it was an incredible experience, I heard Miles Davis, and Thelonious Monk, and Sonny Rollins, and Herbie Hancock, and Sonny Stitt, and Dexter Gordon, and everybody. That had to be mind-blowing at that time. It was great. It was really inspiring and uh, informational, or, you know, to, to sit up close and watch these guys play and do, do their work was uh, invaluable. Absolutely. So, in the beginning of your life, why did you choose the saxophone? <laughs> uh, I, I didn't actually choose the saxophone at the beginning. I, I first played uh, guitar and piano and then clarinet, and uh, I, honestly, I wanted to play every instrument. I just loved music, and, uh, the, you know, I, I really enjoyed the challenge of conquering a new instrument. So um, saxophone just kind of showed up because there was an opportunity to play in the school jazz band, and uh, I, like I said, I borrowed a saxophone and played a little, and then my folks rented me a saxophone, I think, and, uh, you know, I... As I listened to more and more jazz music, I started to gravitate towards the tenor saxophone, just, I think, because of the range and the sound and all the great tenor saxophones that I had the opportunity to hear. Absolutely. So, what was it that made you decide that music was your calling in life? Oh, uh, I don't know. I didn't know what else to do, quite frankly. And uh, I had a very keen interest in how music worked. And I could spend countless hours sitting at a piano with a guitar or a saxophone, just trying to, to decipher things 
perhaps that I have heard on recordings or on the television or radio and, you know, experiment and shuffle things around and make up things. And, you know, in, in, in essence, I was starting to compose and, you know, create a foundation for improvising. I right. didn't know it. Though. Yeah, absolutely. So in your education years, Jackie McLean, what did he teach you at the College of Music in Hartford? Jack McLean, uh, he had just started his jazz program there. This was 1970. And I actually was a clarinet major at that school, so I spent a good deal of time practicing the clarinet. Uh, I was also playing a lot of piano. I was practicing flute and saxophone. Um, so I was doing, I was learning music in general, all different kinds of music. And Jackie was a great mentor, just, you know, a role model. He was there. Uh, he had, of course, you know, this incredible legacy of material he had uh, recorded and played with everybody. He taught this great history course at school that I took that was just remarkable. It's, you know, it's remarkable when somebody tells you about historical facts and they're in the history. They were there. You know, that really adds weight and relevance to what the person's teaching. And so basically, you know, I didn't really study privately with Jackie, but I just watched him, followed him around and heard him play and, and listened to him talk. And it was a real inspiration. Right on. What was your first jazz experience life? Kind of your first real go at it on the stage. How did you feel? What were you thinking? You mean professionally? Yes. Um, gosh. Well, let's see. I, I, I got out of Manhattan School of Music spring of 1974, and I immediately got a call to work with a Brazilian piano player named Yamir Diodato, who had a hit record on CTI at the time. He took the, the Strauss out of Houston music and, you know, funked it up and uh, was you know, actually a, a really accomplished arranger and you know, very good musician, and he had this band, and uh, I got a call to play with that band. My first gig, I think it was like a few days after school, I did was in Carnegie Hall with Diodato. Wow. And uh, I was I was pretty terrified, you know. I mean, I had never really done anything of, of that stature before. And, you know, I was by far the youngest guy in the band. But it was exciting at the same time. And, you know, I don't know if that per se was a jazz experience, but there was some improvising happened and you know I played in the four horn section and it was great music you know so from there I went on to the Tito Puente Orchestra and that was a, you know, a good deal of improvising and also the whole you know Afro-Cuban realm was covered there and that was great got to play every night for a year with Tito and then from there I went to the Buddy Rich Band and that was every night for two and a half years and that was that was grad school, you know, jazz-wise. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I not only really learned how to play, but I learned how to carry myself as a professional musician, uh, how to travel. I learned how to eventually start arranging for big band on that band, which was just a golden experience. And from there, I went to the Fat Jones Mellows Big Band. That was my doctoral studies. Wow, that's great. You know, there's all these academic terms. I'm the chair of a jazz program out in LA, so, you know, which is kind of crazy to me, but, you know, I'm sort of, it's a little bit of street me 
needs academia, you know. So I'm learning an awful lot and sort of in between these two worlds. And, and I think they do work together. But uh, I've, I've had an amazing run, i got to say. I mean, this, this is my 40th year playing music, and I've been quite busy all 40 of those years. Absolutely. Well, I love the metaphor of the education merging with that. It, it, it weaves together a good visual, so it uh, it totally makes sense. So to be on stage with someone like Tito and Buddy for that long in those formative years, what what did they teach you? Not only just about jazz, but about life. Oh well, you know, I watched them very carefully, and I listened, you know, carefully to what was going on, and they were. Number one, they were showmen. They were fantastic, well-rounded musicians. Um, they were prompt. You know, they conducted their business very efficiently and professionally. Um, and they really provided a sense of direction to the music and to the musicians, which, you know, as a band leader, is critical. You, you know, you're driving the ship. You're the driver. You need to really have some sense of of uh, confidence and authority in doing this. Um, you know, and I also learned how not to act, you know. I mean, Tito and Buddy both, they were prone to, you know, kind of freaking out at times. Um, and, you know, that was a good lesson, you know. Uh, I, I, I try not to, I don't do that, quite honestly, as a band leader, I mean. Uh, but it was all good. It was just an, an incredible education and a great, Experience that uh, I've taken with me for sure. Right on. So you've you've wrote, written for and gigged with Art Blakey. What was that experience like? Well, uh, I, I went and sat in with Art's band at the Vanguard on a Sunday night, and uh, which was the custom back in the seventies. And he he liked what he heard, and he asked if I had some uh, material because he was getting ready to record. I brought a few tunes by rehearsal and uh, wound up playing with the band at the Village Gate for a week. He, he kind of informally asked me to join the band. I was still with Buddy Rich and getting ready to record some of the first big band music I had ever written, so I, I, I wasn't quite ready to uh, jump ship with Buddy and move over to Art, and I told him so. And he, uh, he moved on, he hired somebody else. But I got to write a couple of tunes that were recorded on the album called Gypsy Folk Tales, and um, I learned a lot from that experience, just playing with art and, again, watching him and feeling the, that sensation of playing with such a great drummer, you know, and, again, a very powerful band leader who had a really strong sense of direction and could, could you know, mentor young players, so it was a terrific experience. So you've had some crossover work with other musicians like Diana Ross, Steve Winfoot, Steve Winwood, James Taylor. What and Queen? What are those experiences like? Getting out of the jazz realm and getting more into kind of bands and singers like that. Well, I, I was doing some session work in New York in the eighties and into the nineties, and you know during those years, quite a few records were being made, so there was a fair amount of work. Uh, for, for, you know, horn players. And uh, and it actually started in the 70s with the whole disco movement. You know, there was a lot of sessions, you know, because every disco record had horn sections. Yeah. And um, so, you know, uh, I was a fairly good reader, a fairly adaptable player, a pretty good team player. 
and had you know classical experience, some R and B experience, jazz experience, and uh, knew some of the people doing this work. You know, I was in Mike Becker, David Sanborn, Randy, you know, Becker, those guys, and some of the writers and producers. So I started getting called to, to play on records. Hence, had to record with James Taylor and Diana Ross and Queen and Aretha Franklin and Lou Rawls and The Spinners and some really, really wonderful projects. Right on. So, the Yellow Jackets, talk to me about those years. What was that like? When you sit back and think about that time period, what really comes to mind? The Yellow Jackets, I mean, it's my family, you know. I've been in the band 24 years, uh, a great group of people. Um, I joined the band in 1990. It was a very kind of gradual process, they called me. I was in New York, you know, fairly busy. I had my own projects going on and doing a bunch of freelance work and writing a lot and um, they uh, invited me to play on a CD we did called Greenhouse out in LA and uh, it was just a very uh, inspired experience, very interesting, great guys and uh, you know we started playing some gigs and after I think two or three years I, I sort of moved from guest status to band partner status. And that was 24 years ago, and um, it's just something really great about being in an ensemble, particularly like this one, where there's a, a very high level of empathy and camaraderie and teamwork, and it's just a fantastic conversation every time we get together and play, and um, I, I, I love it. It's, it's you know one of my, if not my most favorite musical experience that I'm involved with. Right on. So... You write quite a bit for a number of outfits. What's your favorite way to write? For big bands, small band, quartets, concert, band music? What do you like doing the best? Uh, I like it all. It's fun. You know, variety is fun. I just finished a solo soprano saxophone piece for a former student from Manhattan School of Music who's a hotshot classical soprano saxophone soloist who travels the world. And uh, I've been promising him a piece, so I, I wrote something for him. Uh, just finished doing a new big band record of, you know, arrangements of R&B tunes from the 60s. And that was really fun. Before that, I worked with the WDR in Cologne and did a project called Songs from the 40s with vocalists. And, uh, you know, some of the great American songbook standards um, I arranged for, for vocalists. In fact, we're, gonna, we're going to Japan with my band and the New York Voices, and we're going to do some of that material, so that should be fun. Right on. So it's always you know, something. You know, I've done some some orchestral writing, not a lot, but I I like to try to think of ways to incorporate what I do on the saxophone into an orchestral setting. You know, perhaps maybe with a rhythm section and strings and orchestral winds and percussion. There's there's you know a lot of a lot of interesting things. I mean, for me, writing primarily is about providing an environment in which I'm. I can play, or somebody I know can play. Sure. And in fact, I, I think, you know, Duke Ellington was really the prime example of that approach to writing, where he was able to write for the specific members in his band in, in such a poignant, you know, profound way. He knew what they sounded like and, uh, you know, wrote this very personal uh, 
interesting music as the result. Absolutely. So as a teacher at Southern Cal, what do you try to teach your kids? What's what's the thing you want them to really take away from your role as a teacher? Um, I try to try to inspire them. I, you know, I'll give them some information to work on. But basically, what I'm telling them is, this is just the beginning. When you uh, leave school, you you know the, the the hard work begins. You you really it never ends. I mean, it's it's an ongoing process in terms of. Uh, learning new information, uh, learning how to integrate it into what you do, um, learning, you know, how to keep learning, basically, and grow and keep growing. Um, a, a big portion of that is being an instigator, you know, being a composer, an arranger, a producer, uh, a band leader, you know. Um, I also try to instill in them the importance of how one carries oneself in terms of being successful in anything they do. You know, if somebody has a positive attitude, uh, you know, is is a member of the team, um, is is empathetic, is punctual, is you know, focused and organized. All those things play a huge role in whether you get called back again and how much you get called to begin with. Absolutely. What's the greatest thing about waking up every day? Um, for me, the greatest thing is number one. I get to I get to play music. I get to try new things. I, you know, I get to let my mind run wild and dream up sort of new situations and new ideas. And it really spills over into life in general. I, you know, I get to try things. I get to try different ways to eat, different ways to take care of myself, different ways to experience the world. Uh, I'm always curious to see what's happening in the world and you know, try to sort of figure out how to respond to it, how to interact with it, and uh, and to be okay in the world and really be the best person I can be. And that's, that's, well, that's a lot. That's, you know, that's incredible. Um, you know, I think a big part of, you know, what, what people aspire to do is to, to replace whatever negativity might be there with some level of positive thinking and, you know, just this, optimistic outlook where yes, things are challenging in life but we move through them and, you know, it could be sort of a joyous thing to get through a challenge uh, rather than, you know, a big downer. So, it's a lot, lot, to, lot to do every day and a lot to be thankful for. And, you know, I, I, I generally, uh, when I get up, I, I, I try to remember all that and you know, start my day. Well said, well said. So, of all the folks you performed with, we've went through Tito and Buddy and Thad and Art Blakey and Bobby McFerrin and all these folks. Who is it that you still want to perform with that you have not performed with? Oh, man. I don't know. A lot of them have passed away. Um, I, I just played with Herbie Hancock back in August, and that was somebody I really wanted to play with. I had you know, been on some recordings that he was on, but we hadn't really played in a live setting before. Um, so that was, you know, that was one down that I had always aspired to play with. Um, you know, I've played with a lot of great people, and um, I'm, I'm okay. Right <laughs> on. Of, I mean, which is not to say there are other people I might wind up playing with one day. Um, off the top of my head, I can't really 
think of who that might be, but, um, you know, I'm playing with the people I always wanted to play with. And I, uh, I, I maybe didn't even know I wanted to play with them, but I mean, playing with the Yellow Jackets three to four months out of the year, it, it just doesn't get much better than that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Playing, uh, when, I, when I put a big band project together, you know, playing with Peter Erskine and John Riley or Will Kennedy, who played on the last, this last R&B thing, and, you know, great piano players like Phil Markowitz or Russ Ferrante. Um, they they may, may not be the most famous musicians out there, but, but to me, they're the best. Yeah. Uh, particularly for what I do. And so I feel very fortunate to uh, be playing with the best people I, I could possibly be playing with. Right on. So your your base is the fans that you entertain, whether you meet them in person or uh, you know they listen to your music. What is the nicest thing that any of those fans have ever said to you? It's just nice in general if your music reaches people and affects them in some sort of positive or you know even provocative way. If you're you know if you're if you're touching people with your music and they're they're reacting to it. That's a gift. That's an incredible gift. And, you know, it's it's always interesting to hear people's reactions, responses to what you're playing and, and you know, to engage in conversation with these folks. It's, it's just very affirming and, and nice to know that, that uh, the music is connecting with others. Cool. So of all the albums you've been a part of, from Papa Lips to Departure to Gently, all the way down the line, is there a particular album you think, man, that was... That was something else. Like there, it really jumps out in your mind. Not really. I mean, I, I, I'm proud of all of them. Um, I I don't, as a rule, list go back and listen to these old records. But you know, on occasion, I might have to send a, an MP3 to somebody that's going to perform one of these songs, and uh, you know, I'll listen to it for a few moments and think, wow, that that was really pretty good. But uh, say I don't hear things that I would do differently today. Uh, you know, I think we're very hypercritical and, uh, you know, to be a, a, a really great musician, one must pay a good deal of attention to detail. So, you know, you hear all the nuance and all the little flaws in your playing when you listen to it, at least I do. Yeah. And I, I, I generally think, oh, man, I, you know, I could have done that a little better or a little differently. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the other part of it is, we, I think it's important that we are accepting of what we do, you know? I mean, if I was to a record I did back in the 70s, that was me back then, and I accept that. And, you know, if I was to something I did last week, that's now. And I accept that as well, and, uh, you know, I'm going to keep working on it, hopefully keep growing. Right on. So, do you have a really good jazz story that's safe to play on radio? A good jazz story. Yeah. Um, I have thousands, but uh, <laughs> on the street, on radio. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's so many Buddy Rich stories. I mean, he was such a character. He was just hilarious at times. <laughs> uh, he, he he had a great sense of humor. You know, it was certainly, you know, from the Don Rickles school where you would get up in your face. And <laughs> it was somewhat abrasive, but... It was also very clever, and he was very smart. He had a photographic memory. He didn't read music, so 
would memorize a, a, a new piece of music immediately and, wow. you know, just play through it once and then he'd know it forever. He knew every rhythm, every bit of information about the form, about the whole thing, the arrangement. He was just so musically astute that he could do all these things. And uh, anyway, you know, just a couple of couple of little moments. We, uh, I remember uh, we playing in a club and this, uh, this woman was, and we were in New York and this woman was heckling Buddy. And, uh, this tap dancer, Baby Lawrence, was in the audience and this woman was, had this sort of annoying voice of thing. Buddy, let Baby Lawrence tap dance. Come on, let him get up and tap dance. Buddy, without a moment of hesitation, looked over at her and said, uh, uh, why don't you stick out your tongue and let him dance on that? <laughs> and then another, you know, there was another another incident where uh, we were playing in somewhere at a club, and there was some guys sitting right in front. And he had his feet up, you know, on the stage. Yeah. Which is, you know, a bit slovenly, if you ask me. Yeah. So it's not terribly respectful. So, <laughs> but he was standing right there, you know, on the microphone talking to the audience, and. Uh, in the middle of the set, he looked down at the guy and said, excuse me, are you in my band? And the guy looked at him and I don't know if he said anything. He said, get your damn feet off my stage. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. So, let me let me ask you this. Has jazz made the world a better place? I think so, yeah. I think, I think jazz and music in general makes the world a better place. It's... Uh, can be joyous, it can be kind of a connective tissue between cultures. I mean, uh, point, I travel the world frequently, I play with people that don't even speak English, and you have this common language, you have this effect on people that inspires them, and feel good, or makes them forget their troubles. Sure. So yes, absolutely. Right on. Let me, let me ask you this, have you ever been to Kansas City to play? Oh yeah, numerous times. We used to play at the Emporium, uh, the Yellow Jackets, played there for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, the Grand Emporium. Grand Emporium, right, right. Great place. We played the KC Jazz Festival numerous times as well. Right on. Um, what's left to accomplish for you? You have a legendary career spanning 40 years. So many things have happened. What is left for you to accomplish? Well, I, I, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to uh, help people. I want to, you know, show people things. I want to be supportive of people. I want to be the best person I can be. I want to, you know, be of service to other people, you know, help them any way I can. Uh, I want to use my prominence in some sort of positive light where, you know, I can impart uh, positive messages that, that perhaps help young people or, you know, help the world in some kind of way. I mean, you know, we need to, we need to pitch in and help one another. So that's, that's a big part of, of what I do, you know, and, and I want to, you know, keep learning, keep expanding and growing. And so that, you know, when I get to the uh, final chapter, you know, I can look back and go, man, Bob, hey, it was a huge pleasure to talk with you. I love your music, and thanks again for your time. Thanks, Joe, and all the best to you, and good luck with all your endeavors, and uh, hopefully we'll run into you one of these days. I'd love to, man. Take it easy. All right, you too.
Bye-bye. Thanks for listening and tuning into a special Neon Jazz interview session where we give you a bit of insight into the legends that have given us all that jazz. And thanks to the great Bob Menser for his honesty and time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.